1: Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books in French Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host Roxanne Panchassi. My guest in this episode is Jeffrey Jackson, the author of Paper Bullets: Two Artists Who Risked Their Lives to Defy the Nazis. And the book was published by Algonquin Books in 2020. Hi there, Jeff.
2: Hi Roxanne.
1: Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me.
2: Well, thanks so much for inviting me. This is such a great podcast and it's really an honor to be uh, to be here talking with you today.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited to speak with you about this fantastic book, Jeff. I've been asking all of my interviewees where they are uh, and and how they've been doing during this era now of uh, global pandemic. Do you want to tell us a little bit about you and your family and how that's all going?
2: Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, we've been doing well. Um, we've all stayed healthy, which has been great. You know, when we first went remote, uh, remote teaching was obviously a, a a shift, um, but I think everything worked out pretty well. Um, Our kids go to a school uh, that was able to reopen with very uh, heavy masking and and cleanliness protocols. Um, and so they were actually in, in school for much of, of the pandemic. And I know that was a great blessing for us, uh, <laughs> because they weren't at home all the time and they were able to see friends and, and, but, but still also be safe. So I think we were very lucky in that way. Uh, but we're just, you know, we've, we've gotten as, as many vaccines as we can, and <laughs> we're, uh, hoping that this will be over soon.
1: Jeff, the other question I always ask people on this French Studies channel is, you know, why France? How did you come to be a a historian of France, among other things?
2: (laughs) Well, it's a great question. And I I sometimes ask myself that, uh, too, looking back (laughs) over the years. But I think in my case, uh, some of it was um, was luck uh, in a sense, uh, because the school that I went to, the elementary school that I went to, they taught French. That was the language that they taught us. Um, and so from a very early age, really starting in first grade, I was learning French um, and all the way through high school. And so I had a really solid foundation in French language and also French culture and you know the little bits of French history that you pick up uh, in a high school class or something like that. The other source for me, I think, or the other uh, reason behind it is that my grandparents did a lot of traveling um, as they got older and retired and, and they had saved up and they just wanted to travel. And so they went all over the world. I mean, they literally circumnavigated the globe. They went to Europe a lot, and so they would bring back souvenirs and photographs and and stories. And um, and so, sort of putting those things together, hearing them talk about their their experiences, and then me studying the French language, I think, I just kind of somehow oriented me towards uh, towards studying European histories or generally, but uh, French history in particular. I didn't when I went to graduate school. I didn't necessarily want to do French history. I thought I was going to do more intellectual history, actually. And then that was another sort of, I guess you could say, a kind of good fortune uh, on my part it was that um, I went to the University of Rochester when Alice Conklin uh, was there. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we kind of clicked. So I had a good mentorship um, from those early days. And, you know, all those threads just kind of came together.
1: Jeff, I want to ask you about what brought you to the subject of this book. The last... Uh, book of yours that I read was your last book, the book about the Paris flood of when was 1910. It? Paris flood? 1910. So yeah, I want, I want you to tell us about how you came to the subject of this, of this book and this project, but also how you see it kind of fitting into your, your oeuvre, as it were.
2: <laughs> yeah, I came to this book um, in, in some ways, in a similar way, as I did to the, the flood book, uh, Paris Underwater. Um, and I think that's, I would say it's just, chance, really. <laughs> um, good, hmm. good luck. Um, because this project, uh, Paper Bullets, came about because my wife is an art historian, and hmm. she taught for uh, a number of years. Uh, she taught a course on the history of photography. And so I was sort of looking around for a project, sort of thinking about what I might do next. And she knew and had taught the work of Claude Caen and Marcel Moore and said to me, you know, you, you should look at these photographs. You should look at what they're doing. Um, it's really interesting. And she knew a little bit about the story of the of the the wartime resistance, but she didn't know much. But uh, I started looking at these photos because I always I always listen to my wife. Okay. And so uh, I started <laughs> looking at these photographs and I thought, yeah, there's really something interesting here. Um, and I want to know more. I want to learn more. And it's kind of similar to the to the last project, the, the flood book, because it was just kind of by chance that I came across that story. In that case, we were we were actually taking a tour of the Paris sewers, um, as you do, uh, and we uh, came to the end of the tour and there's a little historical display of the history of the sewers. And there was a photograph of, of the sewers that had flooded um, in 1910. And I remember thinking, wow, that would make an interesting project one day. And that actually happened to be we were there in the summer of 2005 and then August of 2005 was Hurricane Katrina. And so in that case, I kind of made the link and I said, yeah, this, that flood project, that's something I really need to be working on Mm -hmm. um, right now. So I've, I've been very fortunate to sort of stumble upon these projects and people tell me I I must have a nose for these things. And, you know, I, I, I don't, it's not that I'm looking in the archive for this or, you know, try or somehow trying to find these stories, but, but when they've come to me, I've recognized that there's something there. And at least at the very sort of core of it, I think, is curiosity, just wanting to know more. Um, and then uh, as I have really tried to investigate, then I found out in both of those cases that that really not much had been written about it. So I thought, you know, this is a project to work on.
1: You're definitely one of those people who whenever you've got something that comes out, I think, oh, <laughs> like what a great project and what a great thing to, to work on. And then to read about, you know, I think at first glance, one might say that Paper Bullets, this new book is You know, about a completely different set of things, different time, you know, different historical subjects and issues and thematics. But um, reading it, I definitely felt like I was reading a Jeffrey Jackson book. Did you (laughs) do you know what I mean when I say Um, that?
2: (laughs) No, you'll have to tell me more, <laughs> because of course when I write when I write a Jeffrey Jackson book, I, I'm not <laughs> I'm not thinking of it in the same way. I guess.
1: <laughs> I just felt like your method, your approach, the way you write those things. I guess I'm wondering if you see a a common ground between the two projects in terms of your your way of going about them.
2: Well, I mean, I guess I do. Uh, one thing that I do think has been part of all of my work um, is that I really try to get down to ground level. And I try to think about the lived experience. Um, mm. And that was certainly true in the flood book. And it's definitely true in paper bullets as well. I've always defined myself as a cultural historian. Um, and of course, my first book about jazz in Paris was really sort of very much in that mode. But, but I've also been very influenced, I think, by social history as well. And I think that sense somehow combining cultural and social, really getting down to ground level, thinking about the lived experience, um, while also trying to get inside the the mind of other people and inside the, the kind of cultural framework. That's what I try to, to do. And that's when I talk in my classes about, you know, what historians do, you know, trying to understand what it's like to see the world from someone else's point of view. And so I think that's what's partly attracted me to these kinds of stories is because they do allow me to get into a kind of very specific, you know, almost micro historical kind of ground level story, but one that then opens up into bigger mm-hmm. questions. And I think that's the kind of cultural history influence for me, at least, because when I think about the books that were really influential for me when I was in graduate school and reading, it's, it was always those stories, the little stories that open up into big stories um, that I found the most, the most fascinating.
1: Well, and with great success as a reader, I can tell you that. (laughs) Thank you. So let's dig in, Jeff, and talk about these two artists who risked their lives to defy the Nazis. Towards the end of the book, you say, and I'm quoting you here, not only have Lucy and Suzanne, Kahn and Moore been written out of the history of World War II resistance, but for decades, scholars ignored them in histories of surrealism, interwar literature and art, gender, sexuality, Jewishness. And the avant-garde, so talk about opening <laughs> up the story of these two artists opens up all of these different uh, historical themes and questions. Who were Lucy and Suzanne, who you know took on the names Kara and Moore um, as artists? What can you tell us about their sort of backstories before uh, you get into their activism in resistance against the Nazis?
2: It's funny, when I, when I talk about their lives, you know, the, the bulk of the book is really about what happens during the war. Mm-hmm. But I sometimes say that, that if you didn't even talk about the war part, just the first part of their lives was an amazing story mm-hmm. as well. So it's almost like, you know, their entire lives had this incredible arc of, of drama and passion and, and just all sorts of things going on. So, so the backstory is that they, I talk about them as, as daughters of wealth and privilege. I mean, they grew up in Nantes. They uh, came from money. Uh, Lucy's father was a newspaper editor uh, and owner, and uh, Suzanne's father was a, a very prominent physician and head of the medical school. So they met when they were very young. They were, their families were part of, of, of society, um, wealthy society, and so they actually played together as they were it was, as they were small children and got to know each other really from childhood. But at some point along the way, they begin to, uh, especially as they get older and they become teenagers, they, they fell in love one of the things that I think is really important about this story or the way that I tell this story is to talk about it really as a love story. Um, It's, it's many kinds of stories, it's many things, but at the core of it really is the love story that begins when they are very young and that love story really carries them through. So, you know, the other important early part of this is uh, of course that Lucy is very young when this hell happens, but, uh, but she grows up in the Dreyfus affair. Mm. And so that also shapes uh, the way that she comes to think about uh, identity. Her her father's family was Jewish, although they were assimilated. But in the wake of the Dreyfus Affair, I think, you know, she she comes to understand about identity and about politics and the intersection of those things. And she will actually embrace elements of her Jewish background, even though she herself did not practice the faith she would still embrace elements of her Jewish family identity. And for her, for her, I think it was a way of identifying with the outsider mm. um, because also at, from young ages, they were both developing their skills as artists. Um, Lucy really as a writer and Suzanne as an illustrator And then together, they began to collaborate on photography. Neither of them was trained as a photographer. Neither of them knew how to develop film. As best we can tell, they only owned one camera for their entire lives. So the photography, in a funny way, was really a hobby, I think. Um, But that's what they've now become famous for under their artistic names of Claude Caen and Marcel Moore. But creativity was always a part of their life. And it was always something that they did together. What has often happened is that people have foregrounded the photography and foregrounded the story of Claude Caron because she's the one in most of the photographs. And that has right. meant that, that Mar- Marcel Moore has gotten sort of erased from the story. And part of what I'm trying to do in this book, I think is to really restore this as a story of partnership, both sort of partnership of their, in their lives and also partnership in their creativity. And that that partnership and their, their relationship then is part of what sustains them through this four year campaign of resistance against the Nazis.
1: In terms of uh, the identity of these two artists, the identities of these two artists, Jeff, and their relationship, what can you tell us, you know, as a researcher and a writer, how you made the choices to refer to their relationship, to refer to them, including, you know, the pronouns that you use throughout the book? And, you know, where that places this book in terms of ongoing debates about how we gender our historical subjects, how we think about their own identities and how they would identify?
2: Yeah, that's such a great question. And it's something that I've really thought a lot about and uh, throughout the whole process of writing this book, because um, there are a number of people today who have said, you know, we should be using they, them pronouns to talk about these women. There are a number of people who say, um, you know, that we should only be using the names Claude Caen and Marcel Moore to talk about them. Um, you know, there, there are whole debates about, you know, not just about them, but obviously larger questions about how we how we talk about these issues in the past. And the decisions that I made were decisions that were largely based on the sources, first of all, because when I go back and I look at the sources, for example, they never called each other Claude, or Marcel. Those are very clearly their artistic names, that they were producing artwork under those names. But when they were writing about each other or writing to one another, they called each other Lucy and Suzanne. Mm. And so in the book, um, mostly I refer to them as Lucy and Suzanne because I'm mostly writing about their post-Paris years when they leave and they move to Jersey. When I do write about them in their years in Paris, I've tried to make it clear that they still are seeing each other as Lucy and Suzanne, but, but sometimes you know in the persona of Claude Kahn, sometimes in the persona of Marcel Moore. So the sources, I tried to let the sources be my guide um, mm. for one thing. So they always refer to themselves as women. They always use she, her pronouns. Um, they always refer to each other as Lucy and Suzanne. I also was very cognizant of the fact of trying not to go back and to place a modern day identity on someone living in the past. That they might not themselves have claimed. Now, obviously, I don't know if they were living today in our time what they might have used different pronouns or they might have you know uh, identified in a different way. But thinking about the mental universe that they had access to, um, you know, in a in a language like French that's very gendered um, at a time when some of these categories were actually in flux, they didn't use the word lesbian to, to talk about themselves. I never see, saw in any of the documents that I looked at, I never saw them identify in that way. And of course, the word lesbian didn't mean exactly the same thing, or it was one of several terms that was that was used at the time to describe the kind of relationship that that they had. So I actually did use the word lesbian in the book to talk about them, Mostly, sort of, for convenience' sake, because even if they might not have used that word, that is a, a concept that modern readers would understand. But at the same time, I was also very aware of the complexity around that choice and other choices about pronouns and about gender and naming and so forth. So, it's something that I I thought a lot about. You know, I, there there may be readers who disagree with my choices, and and I respect that. And I certainly you know would never want to. Um, Take away if, if somebody who, for example, was a trans reader today who looked back at Claude Kahn and Marcel Moore and said, "I take inspiration from them; they're they are heroes for me." You know, I would never want to take that away from anybody, um, mm. or to sort of correct them and say, "Oh no, we must use historically correct pronouns." You know, um, people have to sort of think about their own relationship to the past. But as a historian, as a, as a scholar, as a writer, I was trying to be very cognizant of not only my own identity and who I am. Um, and trying not to then impose on others, but also to really kind of be sensitive to the historical moment and to the historical context. So, um, you know, I, I hope that I've done a good job. And, and I've gotten some positive feedback from folks from the LGBTQ community who, have, who felt like that it was a sensitive um, approach. So that was, um, that was gratifying.
1: Mm-hmm. I just want to follow up a little bit Uh, In terms of accessing their lives, their story, their fascinating story and complicated story, what are you working with in this book? What are the sources and materials that you had access to, you know, the range of those things?
2: Well, as far as the sources go, there were really sort of three primary bodies of source material that I was drawing from. Uh, One was some posthumously published work. In the late 80s, early 90s, they were essentially kind of rediscovered by a French writer and philosopher named François Le Perlier, who wrote a biography, and that biography was of Claude Caen only, not Marcel Moore, And so that thus begins the kind Mm. of writing out of, of More from the story. Le Perlier, compiled a collection of Claude Caen's writings and and then published them in the early 90s, I think it was. And so that was one, and that's a it's a very big, fat book. Uh, some people may be familiar with this, and it, it contains some work that had been previously published and then some work that had never been published before that only existed in manuscript form. So that was one uh, body of source material. But then there were two archival um, sources or sets of archival sources that I was using, one on the island of Jersey, which is where most of the action of my book takes place. That's where they move, they go after, they leave Mm -hmm. Paris in 1937 and and died there and are buried there. And so uh, they had no heirs. And so uh, a lot of, all of their material was sold basically after Suzanne died in the early 1970s, Um, it was sold at auction. And so some of it ended up in the archive on Jersey through a sort of roundabout way, and then another chunk of it ended up uh, at Yale uh, in the the Beinecke uh, Library, their Special Collections Library, and so I spent some time there as well. And I think that's one of the reasons why why this story hasn't been told before is I think the the material is kind of scattered. It's you had to uh, you know I had to do a lot of legwork to mm. <laughs> to track this down, and I think yeah. people who've written about them in the past have have focused. So much on the the photographs, which are amazing and and shocking, and you know, beautiful sure. and, and weird, and you know, all sorts of things. Um, and that's that's been the all yeah, that and all more. That. And that's been the entree, I think, for for many scholars, um, is to look at the photos. But the but the archival stuff um, has has been either too difficult to find, or people didn't want to take the time, or they or maybe they looked at it but just didn't see anything worth worth using. It's it's hard to describe how much work went into actually. Recovering this story. And I, and I really do think that's one of the reasons why people just haven't written about it before is that it, it just it, it took a lot of work to do it.
1: Well, I mean, thanks, Jeff, cool. <laughs> for doing <laughs> all of that work. Because once you read the story, I mean, it's kind of insane to me that this story isn't out there <laughs> more. Right? Like, it's just, okay, go get a grip <laughs> and get us back to the place in their story where, you know, you set up the book and really it's that moment in the, later 1930s 1937 when they decide when the two of them decide to to relocate to to Jersey and the, and that's where they ride out the second world war and the and the german occupation um, so what sort of is the immediate trigger or reason that they that they go Well they
2: go in part because Paris has become very difficult of course by the mid 1930s uh, politically very charged environment um, there are you know, fascist and proto-fascist groups in the streets. This is after the Stavisky riots. This is, you know, after uh, so much of, of, and also during the depression as well. And so... They decide to leave in part because I think they just want to get away from a lot of that. They they had been politically engaged for a mm. while. They had been they were friends with communists. They were you know, they would go to meetings and they would sign petitions. And they the Surrealists that were who were their friends, of course, were also very actively involved in, in left wing politics, communist politics. Um, but I think they just got tired of it. And uh, I think the other reason, of course, is that that. Lucy had very serious chronic health issues. and I think this, there was the sense that Paris was just mm. too exhausting. It was a place that they um, that they didn't want to be anymore. You know, it's they never really say uh, why they leave. But I think you know one of the things when you when you read so much of this material, over and over again, and you sort of dig into it, you know, there is a real sense that you kind of, you kind of feel like you, you do know them after a while, you, know, you read all these, their, their writings, yeah. their sources, and sources, and even though they don't ever explicitly say, for example, we left Paris for these reasons, um, I feel like I have gotten to know them so well, just through what they have, have left behind, that what I've just said about, you know, the politics is exhausting, and, and the chronic health issues, that that sort of makes sense as the the, the reason for why I think they they end up leaving, you know, you you develop that sense of kind of, you know, how, how they thought about the world um, when you read these kind of sources.
1: Maybe Jeff, could you situate us a little bit in terms of Jersey? Like, you know, I know what it is and where it is, but I don't, I don't really know a lot about that place. And it is so important to to this story and to to this period in their lives that that, that the book focuses on. So yeah, could you give us, I mean, the quick <laughs> kind of rundown of you don't have to go back centuries and centuries, although you could in right. the case of Jersey, right? So um yeah, just just situate us in terms of place Yeah. So
2: Jersey bit. is really just off the French coast. It's just off the coast of Normandy. It's much closer to France than it is to Britain but it's, it's British territory. It's, it's, it's independent, it's self-governing, but it's loyal to the British crown, uh, all the Channel Islands. So Jersey mm. and Guernsey are the two major islands. And then there's a series of other islands. Um, there's seven inhabited islands in the Channel Islands uh, and then a few other pieces of territory. So um, it's much closer to France. And indeed, there, it, it, had been, it had been French territory. It had been connected with France in the past. And there's a lot of French influence there. A lot of the old family names are French. Or clearly derived from French, a lot of the street names, the place names, the capital of Jersey is Saint Helier. Um, you know, there's a lot of francophone elements uh, to Jersey culture. But politically, as I say, it's it's connected to Britain and, and loyal to the British Crown. They use British currency. They uh, they drive on the left. Uh, you know, it's uh, it feels very British, uh, and yet it also feels very French too. And I think that was part of perhaps the attraction for them. I mean, they had vacation on Jersey um, over the years. So it was a place that they knew, you know, in my sense, I went spent some time there to, in doing the research. I did kind of feel like I was halfway between London and Paris. You know, it, it had that kind of, it was familiar. I could see how it would be familiar to people from France and yet also far enough away if you're trying to escape for example, the crazy politics of Paris in the 30s, that it would be a very, you know, restful place to be. Um, it's an island, there's there are beaches, there's, you know, it has some of the highest tides in the world. So it's very visually striking. It has these big brown granite cliffs that look out over the ocean. It feels familiar and different at the same time.
1: And how should we think about the occupation on Jersey differently than... As French historians, <laughs> <laughs> um, what are the kinds of things you'd want to draw our attention to in terms of the differences between the occupation uh, in in France and and what life is like under the German occupation on Jersey? Well,
2: I think a couple of things stand out. One is that it it's cut off when they do begin to talk about resistance and they begin to think about you know how can we resist. It's very clear to them that whatever they do is not going to be connected to anything that's going on in France or in England, for that matter. Um, that these islands are really mm-hmm. are really cut off because there's no way to contact other resistance groups, for example, uh, you know, on on the mainland, on the continent. Mm. There's no there's no way to be part of the French resistance more generally. Um, they thought at one point about leaving uh, because initially, when uh, when the war begins and um, it's clear that Jersey is in in the target, um, that a lot of people do leave and they thought about it. But in the end, they decide to stay in part because they they don't think they can do anything anywhere else. But they also recognize that this means that it's going to cut them off. And so I think the fact that this is also a small space, it's highly concentrated. Uh, it means that that the occupation looks very different in that, uh, in that sense. And also, I think the fact that the Islands, the, the Channel Islands were strategically very important. They were part of what the Germans called the Atlantic Wall, and the Atlantic Wall was a series uh-huh. of fortifications and defenses that began in in Scandinavia and then came through the Channel Islands and then went down the French coast. But the Channel Islands were were very important because because of their proximity to Britain as well. It was a very intense environment. Not the occupation was not intense in other places certainly, but it but because it's such a small space, highly concentrated, and then strategically very important without the possibility of communicating with any other resistance groups or anyone else for that matter. I think it, it was there's real sense. A lot of people on Jersey talked about feeling like they were in a prison uh, the entire time um, and really sort of um, just just isolated.
1: Jeff, I feel like I've been holding myself back this entire time to just be like, paper bullets. Tell us why the book is called Paper Bullets. So tell us why the book is called Paper Bullets. All
2: right. Bullets. Well, <laughs> it is funny. You have to sort of, you do have to restrain. I know how it is when you... You, you want to I get know. right to the beat of it, but there's this whole backstory. <laughs> so Paper Bullets refers to what they did. It refers to their their technique of resistance. And the way to talk about this is, is to remember that, that they were artists and so and creative people. And so they took those artistic skills, uh, you know, again, Lucy as a writer, uh, Suzanne Marcel-Moore as an illustrator and together as working together collaboratively as photographers, they took all of that creative skill And they wrote notes, um, notes for the Nazis. And that sounds very small and it sounds very insignificant, but the notes that they wrote had a real profound effect on, uh, or profound impact on the the German soldiers because the notes that they were writing were essentially designed to undermine German morale. They were intended to uh, demoralize the troops in the hopes that the troops might desert or mutiny or just leave or go home. The notes took... The form sometimes of dialogues, sometimes of poetry, sometimes of song lyrics, sometimes of jokes. Hitler was a frequent butt of the jokes that they would write, uh, and as well as other senior German leaders. And they would leave these notes all around the island. They would put them on a cafe table or slip them into a magazine at the at the newsstand. Or in some cases, they would actually sidle up alongside of a German soldier and slip it into his coat pocket. Uh, or they would open up the, the door of a German staff car and slip a note into the into the car, so that German soldiers would find these notes, and begin. Hopefully, they they thought would begin to wonder. You know, first of all, who who left this note? Uh, they were, all the notes were written in German. I should say, uh, because uh, Suzanne was fluent in German, and so if a German soldier would um. read the note, he would first of all think, well, okay, was this written by another German soldier? Is there a conspiracy, or are there other? You know, are there other soldiers who are, have doubts about what we're doing here? But then, of course, the hope was he would read the note and then kind of take the message to heart and maybe think, yeah, why are we here? Why are we on this island? Why are we occupying this territory? And this went on for four years in secret. Uh, and they, they sort of escalated as they went along. But that's the core. That's what the paper bullets really refers to are these are these notes um, that they wrote. And um, we never will never know how many notes that they actually wrote. They were not really keeping count. Um, eventually, when they were put on trial, there were about 300 notes uh, in the courtroom. But they basically said that was just a fraction of what we really did. So people who are familiar with their photography um, in the 1920s, you know, there's several dozen um, photographs that are sort of famous of theirs. But I would say that the work, the creative work that they did on Jersey was far, far more (laughs) than any of the work um, that they produced in Paris, because we're talking about you know, certainly in the hundreds of notes, possibly in the thousands of notes um, that they were cranking out on a regular basis for four years.
1: It's such a compelling story. I think it's so exciting to read about and to learn about and to, you know, help us to think about the political and other kind of power of of art, right, And and the kind of intervention it can make. The paper bullets make me think of you know, the propagandistic leaflets that different sides uh, hurl at front lines and populations during wartime. So it's got that little sort of piece of that there, like it's their version of this, but done so so surreptitiously and so on the slide because of the dangers of doing that. You know, there's like a materiality Mm -hmm. to it that I find completely fascinating. You know, you said, how how many did you say? 300 300 at the trial, yeah. At the trial. And what became of all of those, Jeff?
2: That's a great question. Um, the
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that Bob that keeps you up at night. Yeah, it's, it? <laughs>
2: well, it's you know the 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 notes that survive are really reproductions. I mean basically what happened is that after the war Suzanne mm. went back and recreated many of those notes. And previous scholars really have talked about them and written about them as though they were authentic, but I think it's pretty clear from the archival stuff if you look at it carefully that these are actually post-war reconstructions, so it's hard to say, you know, exactly what became of the original notes. They were probably destroyed um, at the end of the war. The Germans were burning documents uh, in their headquarters um, and in the court martial, probably because they didn't want the Allies to to find them. So it's it's impossible to say what exactly became of those notes. But but they're the, the few that survive that are these kind of reproductions. Um, I would say there's probably about mm, two dozen or so maybe uh, that that we have some kind of access to in that in that way.
1: Just to come back to this material question, you know, I, I also thought, and it comes up in a couple of different ways when you're talking about people's diaries and other types of things. The you know shortage of like paper, like that paper was at stake right. <laughs> during the war, and that <laughs> they didn't have post its, duh. Um, <laughs> like they used cigarette paper, and what were the other kinds of things that they used to to leave these notes?
2: They would find yeah any paper that they could find, trash. They tore up an old ledger that had belonged to Suzanne's father that they had brought with them to Jersey, uh, cigarette papers, as you say. They, they would even paint in nail polish on coins um, and drop the coins into the donation box at the church. So they would paint down with war on the in nail polish. So not only on paper, sometimes there was, you're talking about materiality even more uh, like coins or they would make these wooden crosses that they would put on uh, that said, um, for him, the war is over. Um, And they would put Mm. that on the grave of a a German soldier who had died either because of illness or some other reason. And that cemetery was just yards from their house. So they were using paper, but also objects. They would would sometimes even use photographs, cut up things that they would find, like take a magazine, cut it up, make a photo montage, just like they had done in Paris with some of their creative work, um, and rework it and then uh, put it back in the newsstand for a soldier to find. So they were definitely invested in sort of using as many different kinds of objects and and materials that they could to get some kind of message to the Germans. And I think the messages were also, they would vary. Some of them were, you know, designed to look like manifestos. Some of them were designed to be more like, you know, like I said, jokes. Some of them were more kind of uh, uh, more like poetic and, and sort of lyrical. So there was not even one type of message uh, or one type of object or one type of note Um, they were really sort of casting a broad net and i think the idea there was to say you know something, if if this message doesn't get them, maybe this other message will, you know, if this message isn't, isn't connecting with a soldier, then maybe this different type of message will connect with them. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, everyone's different, and everyone will respond to a different message. So they were very smart about this. I talk about this very openly in the book as a psyops campaign, psychological operations, um, because Mm -hmm. it's very clear that they, to me, at least, it's very clear that they were trying to think about this from a psychological standpoint.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: the way that you refer to the, to the campaign is so fascinating to me especially because of the way their whole story where they are who they are what they engage in in terms of these these notes and these paper bullets really complicates you know something that when i'm teaching this period of of history when I'm thinking about it myself, but especially when I'm teaching it, you know this question of like, what is resistance? How do we define it? What's the hierarchy of like more important forms of resistance, lesser forms of resistance, all of that. So I guess I wonder, you know, for you, Jeff, how did their story, how did this history, you know shift your own understanding of how we understand resistance during the period of the Second World War or you know ever? Uh, and, and what do you see as the kind of contribution of this history? of these two artists, to, yeah, to that huge set of debates and, you know, scholarship around the question of resistance?
2: Yeah, that's such a great question. And I, I, I can't claim that I have some, you know, big insight <laughs> into that larger mm-hmm. scholarship, you know, because I think there's been so much great work that's been done to try to sort of conceptualize and theorize resistance and to talk about mm-hmm. it in so many different ways. And I certainly drew on some of that literature, but, but to me, you know, again, thinking about this kind of a ground level and, and kind of from the lived experience side of things, it, it seems to me like this is a story that helps us to really remember that resistance can look different in different times, and different places, and different contexts, that it doesn't always have to be violent. It doesn't always have to be big in scale. It doesn't always, you know, have to be physical. You know, it can be in this kind of small way uh, that is designed to, you know, work in an interior, in the interior life, you know, of, of the power structure. And one of the questions, this actually kind of reminds me, one of the questions that I've thought a lot about is, you know, whether they really believed that they could actually drive the Germans out of Jersey. Uh, because obviously they Mm. they didn't do that. And I don't even necessarily think that they believed that they could actually drive the Germans away. I mean, I I think that, I don't think they were naive in that way at all, but I think that for them, the idea of even just distracting the Germans. um, In other words, if the Germans are spending their time, because they actually did say this in some of their writing, if the Germans are spending their time searching for us, then they're not doing something else. Um, So you know, even just to 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 create a form of resistance that draws attention away from other people, um, is you know is a, a powerful kind of idea. And when I've talked about this story to to various groups, various community groups, and and had book club conversations, and and you know talked to lots of people, it's been interesting to hear people respond. To this issue about resistance and to say things like, you know, I never really thought that resistance could look like this because I think people start to say to themselves, well, maybe I could do this. This is something I could do. I could be engaged in some some form of resistance along these lines. Because I think, you know, again, we often think about resistance has to involve going out in the streets and doing something big and doing something dramatic.
1: So they do get caught, Jeff, and they're arrested, eventually tried and sentenced to death, even though that sentence is, uh, is appealed. I almost feel like I wanted us to stay for four hours on the story of the notes and all that they <laughs> accomplish uh, during this period of time, but there is, well, there are a few different endings to this story and to the to the history that you've written, um, but that ending, can you tell us a little bit about how that, after all, the, I mean, because it's amazing that it lasts so long and that they get away with it for so long, and then they are caught, and then they are arrested and, and tried. What are the kind of without giving away too much what are the the really significant things that readers and potential readers should know about about that phase of this of this history
2: so they do get caught and they do get put on trial and it was great to be able to to sort of reconstruct that sort of courtroom drama scene yeah. it's interesting that that in the trial and then in their time in prison that they continue to resist. I mean, they continue this this uh, this work of resistance. They they continue to pass notes. They meet other prisoners. You know, they help comfort other prisoners, uh, including some of the German soldiers who have been imprisoned for mutiny or for some other for a crime that they've committed. And so, there's a an interesting sort of way that their time in prison is almost like a continuation of the work that they had been mm. doing before. One of the other powerful things about this story, I think, is that as they approach this note writing um, and as they met other prisoners, including German soldiers in prison, it becomes very clear that they see themselves, I think, doing a kind of an act of rescue. Um, that, that this whole project for them has been an attempt to rescue these German soldiers because they say, well, we know what soldiers were like. Our brothers and cousins served in World War I, and we're not afraid of soldiers. Mm. And so there's this real sense of kind of compassion that they have. um, And you see it in their interactions that they have in the prison, even with the guards, even with the German soldiers who are guarding them. They're never really afraid of these guards. They actually pity them. They feel sorry for them because they say these men have been duped by Hitler. They've been duped by the Nazis. And so Mm. there's a real kind of compassion and a real kind of humanity that they bring to, to this and it, it lasts all throughout the the last section of the book, I think, that obviously they hate Nazism and they hate what it stands for, but they can separate out the ideology from the men in front of them. And that really sort of, I think, makes a kind of fascinating story that is so unexpected, because of course, when you think about prisoners in a Nazi jail, you expect there to be, you know, dramatic scenes of beating of or interrogation and, you know, or something violent. Um, and they didn't experience a, a physical violence. I think they experienced a kind of psychological violence because they never knew when they might be taken out and shot. I mean, they had a death sentence on their heads after all. But they were still, throughout all of that, they were still able to to see these men as as human beings um, and to try to connect mm-hmm. with them. And I just I think that's another that was a very unexpected part of the story. I'll put it that way. <laughs> that uh, when I started this, yeah. I didn't I didn't expect to to find that part. Um, and then to write about it. And that's that's been another thing I think a lot of audiences have really sort of connected with um, as I've talked to folks about the book.
1: I, I should have asked you this earlier, Jeff, but I'll ask you now. Um, what sense do we have of, like how aware were were people uh, in a in a more collective sense of what these two were doing? Um, do we have what do we have in terms of, Uh, a sense of the impact that it had on the soldiers they left notes for? What do we know about the community around them and how they interacted with them and how, how aware people would have been that this was happening?
2: I wish I had had documents from the soldier's point of view. That's the one Hmm. thing that I can't really say exactly what soldiers thought with a couple of exceptions, because they do actually meet a couple of soldiers in prison who had read their notes um, and were inspired Hmm. by them. Um, they, yeah. were, they were probably soldiers who were already, you know, having their doubts anyway. And the notes probably just sort of confirmed their their doubts about the war effort. But nevertheless, they do meet a couple of, of folks. But more generally, um, you know, I wish I knew more about what the Germans thought. The one thing I, I usually say when I think about that, though, is that I don't think that the secret field police would have hunted them for four years if <laughs> if it was, was not a serious thing. So sure. the, the fact that they were being tracked you know, for that long, and this evidence was collected, speaks to me of the fact that it was having some kind of impact, or at the very least, the the, the police feared that it was going to have an impact on morale in this strategically important place. I forgot the second half of your question. <laughs> oh,
1: how how aware other residents on Jersey right. were of this happening? Like, who knew, besides the two of them, you know, what was the was there a sense of complicity, awareness, like all of that stuff there, the scene that you open the book with has this sort of, like you get a kind of feeling of like a community vibe, but I don't know if that's just me putting that on there or if it's, uh, if it was how, how people felt about what was happening.
2: Yeah. They, they definitely worked alone. They were explicit about saying that they didn't want to bring anybody else into this because they didn't want to risk anyone else's life. Um, Only one other person knew what they were doing. An old friend of theirs that they had met many years ago on Jersey, but she was not involved in the work. She just knew what they were doing, but, um, but they say that nobody else, they, 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 they say that they intentionally um, kept this from other people. There were other resistance groups on Jersey. Uh, There were other people who were engaged in some kind of resistance but Lucy and Suzanne never connected with them. Um, you know, partly they say because they were just used to working alone. They just, they, they were both kind of loners, Lucy especially. Um, they didn't really, uh, Lucy really didn't like other people. <laughs> um, she was <laughs> very, very antisocial. Um, and so re- really wanted to kind of just keep to themselves. But, um, but I, I really think it was also this desire not to risk anyone else.
1: So they are sentenced uh, to death. Jeff, but they aren't executed. Tell us what happens to them after the
2: war. So when the war is over and the island is liberated, they um, they have to begin to put their lives back together. And their house had been looted by the Germans. Um, they, you know, all their stuff had been taken. So they really have to go around and hunt for their goods. They, they their books, their furniture you know, family belongings, they they have to go and try to find as much of it as they can. And it was not only the Germans who were taking things, but also other people on Jersey. I mean, this was a you know wartime situation. Things were in short supply and so other people sure. had also, you know, taken things from the house once they were arrested and, and carried away. So they attempt to to rebuild as much as they can. But, you know, Lucy had been, as I said before, had suffered from chronic health conditions. For much of her life, and uh, the time in prison certainly had not made that any easier. It had really aggravated some of her lung problems, and so her health really began to decline um, in the years right after the war. But but they were also that was those were also the years where they were trying to begin to make sense of things, and so Lucy wrote some lengthy letters to friends. These were some of the documents that were posthumously published. Actually, some of these long letters um, where she talks about the war experience. She talks about what they were trying to do. She talks about, you know, how they went about the note writing process. Um, and so you get the kind of feeling that, you know, she was she was trying to get the story out there, at least to some friends and maybe some other notes on paper that she could, you know, maybe one day write something about this. Um, and that there's a, there's a, a sense, I always feel like there's a sense of urgency in those documents Um, that survived because it was like she had to get the story down before it was all gone, before it was too late. Um, And so that's part of what makes those documents very difficult to work with because they're, they're, they're very stream of consciousness. They're not in a nice sort of easy logical flow. (laughs) Um, It's very complicated to read some of those post-war letters and post-war jottings. That she does because there, she it, it really does feel like she's just got to write this down. It's whether that's her way of dealing with it or whether that's her way of just you know getting the story down before it's lost. Um, but uh, but it, it's not long before Lucy's health continues to decline and and eventually she uh, she dies in uh, 1954 and is buried uh, on the island. Suzanne buries her um, and then Suzanne lives for another 20 years. Um, she continues to do some of their creative work. She continues to take photographs actually. Um, and then um, she ends up killing herself in the early 1970s. And it's interesting that she commits suicide because that was the, the thing that they were always planning to do if they got caught by the Nazis. They always carried a little bottle in their pocket. Um, and in that bottle was an overdose of a sleeping pill. Uh, and they were always ready to commit suicide if they had been caught by the Nazis. And they actually try in prison. They try to, com- to commit suicide uh, more than once actually. Um, but they're always saved by the Nazis. The the Germans uh, take them to the hospital and save them, in part because they want to continue to interrogate them to find out who's been writing these notes. But uh, but in the end, Suzanne does uh, does kill herself when uh, health issues just become too much for her to bear. Mm. Sorry, I kind of got depressing there by talking about that.
1: <laughs> it is a tragic ending, but it's just part of the, like it's just the last stage of, well, it's not the last stage, but it's just another piece of, you know, what is an incredibly compelling story overall. I, I wanna ask you, Jeff, about writing this book because, you know, as you said, the archival work and like hunting down all of this material that that, it comes together as such a, such an intriguing, romantic, exciting kind of edge of the seat a couple of times <laughs> sort of story. And I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm just gonna admit to you that I don't remember the flood book what was it like to write this book? And I mean I'm sure it was hard, but what was it like to be able to write a story like that that has all of those elements? I mean it almost seems like it's a it's it's too good to be true in some <laughs> moments, you know? And I just I just wonder as a writer what the experience of pulling this book together was like for you.
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's one of those things where after it's done, you know, now that it's out and I can see it and, and go back and and look at it, you know, I think to myself, did I do that? Was that really me who somehow (laughs) pulled that off? It almost seems like a miracle, uh, in a way, because in the, in the middle of doing it, and this is true with writing in general, you know, in the, in the middle of doing it, it's such a, it's such a pain, you know, it's so hard because you, you realize, you know, all the, all of the drama that goes into the, the act of writing, (laughs) um, and uh, and then to see it as a finished product and to hear such generous compliments like the one you're paying me, uh, <laughs> you know, it's sort of like wow, I I, I almost don't believe it myself. But um, but I think I, I sometimes say this is actually the hardest book that I think I've ever written because um, because first of all, I think the 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 French itself was so complicated. I, I felt like um, because it's I mean it feels very surrealist in a lot of places. <laughs> um, and so sorting through something that's kind of stream of consciousness and surrealist and using a lot of references that are clearly very personal references that are not, it's not clear exactly what Lucy, for example, is talking about. You know, it's, it, it was challenging to kind of just to get inside of her head, first of all. And then, as I kind of alluded to earlier, the the state of the sources that it's not in a very easily accessible and or easily it's not easy to follow the logic of, this, of the sources. So it really, it really was a lot of, I, I almost want to say creativity, because even though clearly this is all nonfiction and this is all sourced directly from archival material, it did require a certain amount of creativity on my part to figure out, you know, what order to put things in, right? How to, how to piece the story together. Um, and that's true always, of course, with, with any work that you write, but it's especially challenging when you are trying to write it in a narrative style. And um, this book and the Paris flood book, um, you know, I wrote them, I I wrote them with a broader audience in mind. Of course, I'm I'm always glad that my academic friends, you know, French historians and others uh, read them and and find them valuable and and see the, the academic work that's in there. But I also wanted, you know, to write these stories for people outside of the academic world, because I think these are, I think they're powerful stories and I think they speak to the present moment, they speak to our lives, they speak to our sense of humanity and and the kinds of issues that we all deal with. And I also feel like as a historian, you know, I feel like we have an obligation as historians to speak to people in a broader way, because, um, you know, Mm -hmm. if we, if we don't do that, you know, journalists and and other writers will do it um, and, and, you know, call themselves historians and, and maybe they are great historians, but I think there's something that we academic historians have to bring to broader conversations that sometimes gets left out um, when we don't try to cross over into you know, writing for, for bigger audiences. So, so that adds another level of complexity then to try to tell a story like this, because you have to try to tell it in a way that, I, I hate to use this phrase, but quote, unquote, ordinary people, <laughs> non-academics, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, will, will read it and, and keep reading it and find it interesting. Um, and that's a real, it's a real challenge to do. And it is, it's, I was very lucky to have a great editor, um, to work with on this book, you know, and also friends to read it and to give feedback and, and, you know, just like you would with an academic book, but, but also to, to have people who are also trying to do this work of, you know, crossing over into writing, uh, for broader audiences. So I, so I was lucky to have some folks within the academic world who are doing that work too, and to get their feedback on things as well. So it's, um, it's challenging in, you know, in lots of ways that, that sometimes I think I, that that I didn't even expect.
1: Well, you know, given the book that you've written and given how long it's taken me to actually get through my stack of books so that I could, I could speak to you about this book. I know that you have had just a tremendous response to the book from all sorts of corners. Uh, Do you want to tell us a little bit about who you've gotten to speak with, and you know what what that experience has been like having a book that you're able to share with so many different types of readers.
2: Yeah, I've spoken. I can't even keep track at this point, but I've spoken to um, you know. I've done sort of most of this, I should say, has been on on uh, has been virtual because of the pandemic. Sure. So uh, I really haven't done any live events. I don't think it's all been um, over Zoom or some other platform, but. Um, you know, I've spoken to, to large audiences. I've done things through um, organizations like the, the International Spy Museum in Washington hosted me, the National World War II Museum in New Orleans hosted me. Um, I've been hosted by um, LGBTQ groups um, who are interested in, in this because it is a story of, it's a lesbian love story, basically, right? And so they've they've uh, hosted me. I did actually just the other night, I did a, a, a book discussion group with our local um, LGBTQ community center here in Memphis, and had a wonderful conversation. Just a really rich conversation because people were, you know, were really in- interested in the book, and they were engaging with it both on an intellectual level, but also on a personal level. Um, and almost in a personal level that I wasn't even expecting how personal that they were going to get. But it, but, but I've seen that in a number of of cases where people have really sort of this story has resonated with them in their own lives, and that's been such a, a an amazing thing to have happen. I've spoken, you know, through various public libraries and, you know, all sorts of different types of organizations. So that's very gratifying to have a kind of wide reach, you know, because that's, of course, that's what any author hopes for, (laughs) um, you know, to be able to speak to people um, and to have them read your work and and to get inspired by it. So uh, I, I just feel very lucky to, to do that. And, and also, you know, honored to be on your podcast because, you know, the, it suggests that, you know, academic readers can also get something <laughs> from this. It's, it's something that hopefully can continue to speak to the academic world, even as I'm also speaking to, uh, you know, to, to folks more broadly.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I found this book so fascinating as someone who works on the 20th and 21st centuries, uh, as someone who teaches France in the 20th century, but also a specific class on a course on France during the Second World War. The book came out you know after I had to put in my order for the course <laughs> that I taught in 2020. Uh, so I didn't get to use it and I, I found myself as I was reading it thinking, oh, I wish this book had been out when I when I, uh, when I taught that course because I, I know that it would have been a way into so many important uh, questions. Uh, about the second world war about the occupation about resistance about gender and sexuality during this period about art and politics like all of these things that i'm also just interested in and so yeah i really uh i don't know when i'm going to teach that course again but i i think it would be an amazing book to teach with as well i can't imagine what could possibly follow this act (laughs) jeff but What do you have planned? I mean, you've had a busy year and I know I I kind of hesitate to ask people what's next for them during this period of time, because I feel for a lot of people, you know, just surviving is next for them. (laughs) But do you have ideas about a next project and and what's that going to be?
2: I do have ideas about a next project and I I don't want to say too much just because it's so early Mm -hmm. in the process. And also because, and I I don't even know if I should say this on the new books and French studies podcast, but it's actually not about France. Uh
1: (laughs) That's okay. That's okay. We welcome all spaces.
2: (laughs) No, I've, I've, there's a, there's a fascinating story from the cold war period that I've been um, I've long been drawn to. And I really want to, um, to try to explore that. So I've actually been teaching this semester. I've been teaching a course on uh, Europe and the Cold War kind of as a way to help me to kind of do some background reading and things. So I, I, I mean, maybe I shouldn't say much more. Well, i say it's a, it's a. this is actually a German story. So, um, okay. you know, it's a it's a Berlin story. So we'll see where this goes and if 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 it goes anywhere and maybe not but uh but it's something that it's just it's one of those things that again like like with paper bullets and like with uh, Paris underwater, the small story that opens up into something big I mean I think I, that seems to be the the theme of my of my writing life <laughs> um and th- those are the kinds of stories that I'm drawn to as a reader too, I think so. Um, so it's, it kind of falls in that same vein. So there's a con- there's continuity there, even though it's maybe about a different country or different different context. Um, it's still methodologically kind of in that same vein of small stories that 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 when you zoom out, you see a much bigger picture.
1: Well, Jeff, whatever it's about, I hope I get to speak with you about it somehow, someday. I would love that. Um, and I'm, I'm intrigued, uh, you know, because having read this book, I just feel like intrigue is such a big part of, <laughs> of my mood right now. All right. So um, Jeff, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and for writing this wonderful book.
2: Well, thank you so much for, for all of your kind words and, and for the opportunity to speak to you. I, I love this podcast. You're so great at hosting it. Yeah. And it's such an honor to be here talking to you.